Thank you, Kelsey. Thank you for the introduction that my agents wrote. And, um, uh, and thank you so much, everybody, for coming here. There are two seats up front. I don't know if there's anybody just underneath Rabbit Fan, but interested enough to come here to maybe if anybody wants to sit here. No? Great. Okay. Um, okay, thanks a lot. I can't see you because you're in fatigues. Um, yeah, okay. that's fine. That's fine. You see how special it's like getting bumped up to first class, except you're not going anywhere interesting and it's not going to be that fun. Um, and there are no cookies. Um, yeah. Yeah, okay. It's good. Everybody's funny. Um, okay. <laughs> okay, good. Um, okay, thank you so much for coming here. Thank you to Skylight. Books Foundation. I don't know what the official name is here. Thank you for the to the foundation for having me. <laughs> um, and uh, yes, and th- um, uh, um, and uh, and to the Republican uh, National Committee for for hol- uh, holding it an hour earlier, moving it really an hour earlier to so that everybody can watch it and then come here. They were going to originally hold it, then they moved the the kind of the uh, children's table one to an hour earlier, and the real one too, so that. Everybody can do both things tonight, the Eisenberg reading and the Republican national debate. So thank you so much. Um, uh, This is my fifth stop on a book tour. I was so happy to come here. Uh, I have always heard, you know, Los Angeles is a one-industry town, and I always thought it referred to the book industry. But then, so when I suggested to the publisher I should come here, they said, no, 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 it's films they're interested in. I said, okay, well, maybe I could do that too, because I also do that. And um, and since this is my fifth stop on the tour, I've been asked pretty much the same kind of thing, which is how do I balance the kind of the different things that I do because I do a few different things I write plays I I write the book I act in movies and I I am always kind of a little flummoxed when I try to answer because um how to sum up a life you know um um so I decided to um to put together basically just like one average day and then just kind of just list what I do, like an agenda, a schedule. And I thought I would read it here so that you guys have a general sense of what an average day is for me, just a kind of a basic day. Um, I did today, but this applies to any day. Um, It's really a day in the life of an actor, writer, hyphenate. Which is, that's what I do. Um, I rise promptly at 5 a.m. and I immediately begin writing, doing what any real actor, writer, hyphenate does. I record my dream in a j- dream journal. And each of my dreams will become the basis of one of my many plays, which I will then act in off-Broadway in New York. Today's dream journal entry was, a woman, my grandmother, is yelling at me she looks like Richard Nixon. Sounds like a comedy. Maybe good role for me to play. Man playing a woman playing a man. Interesting. Explore. <laughs> At 5.15, I feed my body, and then I feed my soul. I eat a lean breakfast of granola and egg whites, and then I head to the Bowery Mission, where I distribute soup to the workers at the soup kitchen. <laughs> At 6.30, I head uptown to the cloisters to watch, but ultimately to describe the sunset, which I do on parchment in 13 words every day, 13 words to describe every sunset. Today's description was, like a phoenix, it rises. I wonder how they describe it in phoenix. At 10 a.m., I begin acting in films. Today, I acted in Avatar 2, which is a sequel to the popular 2009 science fiction fantasy film, Avatar. Now, as most actor-writer hyphenates do, I wanted to stretch myself and do a role with an accent. So in Avatar 2, I decided to play an Ethiopian nomad named Habtamu Adinga. Now, at noon, I will finish acting, and I will head home to write one of my many books, or one of my plays. 
And as a kind of palate cleanser, I'll write one joke, because acting can be emotionally draining, especially getting into the mindset of Habtamu. So I will write a joke to get my mind back to a more tolerable stasis. Today's joke was observational in genre. Today's joke was, did you ever notice how people love pickles, but not cucumbers? Seriously, what gives? It's the same thing. Why not just dip the cucumber in brine? You know? (laughs) At 12.30, my assistant arrives with my lunch. I eat only farm-to-table vegetables arranged and diced by color and a single animal carcass. Today, I ate beets in descending order of redness, sprinkled over the carcass of a Croatian boar, which I killed yesterday with a gun and and my hands. (laughs) At 3 p.m., I work on my body. Uh, Today, I worked on my body with Los Angeles Lakers rookie point guard Julius Randle. We ran through drills. Now, I know what you're wondering. You don't write anything post-lunch? Joke's on you. Because... (laughs) On the way to basketball practice, every day I write a haiku about basketball. Every day. Am I being pulled up? Oh, every day. Yeah, I think to the relief of everyone, she neared me. Um, um, Every day I write one haiku about basketball. Today's haiku was, arms are akimbo, on my tippy toes I stand, I am still too short. Now, at 6.30 p.m., I'll do one final acting exercise of the day. Today, I did a Sanford Meisner technique in the mirror. Now, this crowd knows who that is. I just went to Milwaukee. No one knew. It was dreadful. (laughs) To be in a town where no one knows Meisner, let alone Stanislavski. Today's exercise was this. I looked in the mirror, and I looked at Jesse, or as I I called it, myself. (laughs) And I asked him, where are you going? You know? And he, or as I called it, me, responded, I've always been here. And we repeated this for an hour. Now at 8 p.m., I do publicity for my career. Tonight, I'm doing an event at the uh, Skylight Bookstore in Los Feliz, California, And last night, I did Charlie Rose on assignment for 60 minutes, covering roughly the same territory as I'll cover tonight. My life and career. Now, at 11 11 o'clock or 11.30, I will do one final piece of writing, which is kind of a summation of the day. Now, uh, today's summation hasn't been fully formed yet, and it will depend on how this goes tonight. So, kind of balls in your court. But last night's summation was, saw a bird today reminded me of the fragility of not just my own life, but also the birds, as I ran over it with my bike. (laughs) At night, I will tuck into bed with one of the classics. Last night, I read The Sun Also Rises in its original language. (laughs) And then, because he knows it's in English. Um, (laughs) Then, with the prose in my mind, I open my dream journal to a fresh page. I spread Egyptian mud on my face and my corpse, and I look forward to beginning the day anew. So that's an average day. Thank you so much. Okay, I thought I would read uh, maybe just two stories from my title story, the title stories, because they were written about Los Angeles, because uh, I started writing uh, based on an experience that I had here, just very briefly, which was just that I, I, was, I, I was in Los Angeles, and I took my girlfriend to a very fancy restaurant um, as like an anniversary dinner, and she, uh, and, and, and sitting next to us was a family, there were a few kids, and... Um, it was a sushi restaurant, and there was a little girl, maybe nine years old. She said to her mom, Mom, do I like hamachi? And the mother said, No, no, honey, you don't like hamachi. She said, Do I like tamago? She said, Oh, yeah, you like that one. It's the one with the egg. And I thought, 
oh, it's, there was something so funny about just a little kid with that kind of light exposure and life experience um, uh, for something that's kind of the rest of us think of as very special and luxurious. And I thought it'd be funny to start writing a series of restaurant reviews from a, the perspective of like a nine-year-old boy who has like these kind of totally, you know, experiences that are totally inconsistent with what a nine, regular nine-year-old... Um, but then as I wrote them, they kind of turned into a more heartfelt examination of his relationship with his mother. So I thought I would read the first two. The first one takes place at this sushi place, which is called Sushi Nozawa, which I think existed here but is now closed. And then the second one takes place at like a, an Iraqi restaurant. Um, so again, this is like written in the style of restaurant reviews from the perspective of a nine-year-old boy. Um, okay, so the first one is Sushi Nozawa. Uh, last night, mom took me to Sushi Nozawa near Matt's house. Except she didn't let Matt come with us, and I had to leave in the middle of my favorite show because Mom said we would be late for our reservation and that I didn't know who she had to blow on to get the reservation. (laughs) At the front of Sushi Nozawa is a mean woman. When I asked Mom why the woman is so angry, Mom said it's because she's Japanese and that it's cultural. (laughs) The woman at school who serves lunch is also mean, but she's not Japanese. Maybe it's just serving food that makes people angry. (laughs) Sushi Nozawa does not have any menus, which Mom said made it fancy. The sushi chef is very serious, and he stands behind a counter and serves the people whatever he wants. He is also mean. (laughs) The first thing they brought us was a rolled-up wet washcloth, which I unrolled and put on my lap, because Mom always says that the first thing I have to do in a nice restaurant is put the napkin in my lap. But this napkin was hot and wet and made me feel like I peed my pants. (laughs) Mom got angry and asked me if I was stupid. The mean woman then brought a little bowl of mashed-up red fish bodies in a brown sauce and said that it was tuna fish, which I guess was a lie because it didn't taste like tuna and made me want to puke right there at the table. (laughs) But mom said that I had to eat it because Sushi Nozawa was, quote, famous for their tuna. At school, there is a kid named Billy who who everyone secretly calls Billy the bully and who puts toothpaste on a teacher's chair before she comes into the classroom. He is also famous. Mom said they have eggs, so I asked for two eggs. But when the mean woman brought them, they didn't look like eggs. They looked like dirty sponges, and I spit them out on the table in front of Mom, who slammed her hands on the table and made the plates rattle. And so I got scared and spit out more sponge on Mom's hands. And Mom yelled at me in a weird, whispery voice, saying that the only reason she took me to the restaurant is so that Dad would pay for it. Then I started crying, and little bits of the gross egg came out of my nose with snot. And Mom started laughing in a nice way and gave me a hug and told me to be more quiet. The mean woman brought me and mom little plates of more gross fish bodies on rice. I asked mom to take off the fish part so I could just eat the rice. Mom said, great, more for me, and ate my fish. I like rice because mom says it's like Japanese bread, but it has no crust, which is good for me because I don't eat crust anyway. I also like it when mom says, great, more for me, because it seems like that is her happiest expression. (laughs) When the woman brought the bill, mom smiled at her and said thank you, which was a lie, because mom hates when people bring her the bill. When mom and dad were married, mom would always pretend like she was going to pay, and when dad took the bill, which he always did, she said more lies, like, are you sure? Okay, wow, thanks, honey. Now that dad doesn't eat with us anymore, maybe I should pretend to take the bill from mom and say a lie like, oh, really? Oh, okay, thanks, mom. But I don't, because lies are for adults who are sad in their lives. The mean woman took the bill back without saying thank you. I guess she is not sad, but she is definitely angry. I understand why the people who work here are so angry. I guess it's like working at a gas station, but instead of cars, they have to fill up people. And people eat slowly and talk about their stupid lives at the table and make each other laugh. But when the waiters come by, the people at the table stop laughing and become quiet like they don't want to let anyone else in on their great jokes. And if the waiters talk about their own lives, they're not allowed to talk about how bad it is, only how good it is. Like, I'm doing great, how are you? And if they say something truthful, like, I'm doing terrible, I'm a waiter here, they will, they will probably get fired, and then they will be even worse. So it's probably always a good idea to talk about things happily, but sometimes that's impossible. And that's why I'm giving Sushi Nozawa 16 out of 2,000 stars. Okay, okay thank you very much. Um, I'll just read one more. Um, this is um, uh, from a restaurant called Maskouf, which is an Iraqi restaurant. Um, okay, thank you. Um, okay. <laughs> No, no, I mean, I was just... Okay, it's preempting any disappointment by thanking you to unconsciously get you into my good graces by making you feel guilty. So, okay. I wish I didn't didn't acknowledge that. Okay. 
doesn't work as well when you draw attention to your manipulations. Oh no, I'm lying to you and attempt, you to, attempt to, for you to do something for me. Okay, so I'll just read it because this I've already written and what I'm saying I haven't even thought about. So, okay. Okay, so this is called Mascouf. Last night, mom took me to a new restaurant called Mascouf. Mom said that it was an Iraqi restaurant and that we had to go because we are open-minded people and we should support it. I thought it was weird, though, because Matt's brother is in the army in the real Iraq, and their car says, support the troops. So it kind of felt like we were supporting the restaurant instead of Matt's brother. Mom said that all the women in her book club already went to the restaurant, but I didn't know why that meant we had to go to the restaurant, too. And I don't know why Mom is even in the book club, because she doesn't read any of the books. And on the nights before the book club meetings at our house, she says fuck a lot and makes me look on Wikipedia. Then I have to read the plot synopsis and major characters to her while she vacuums, which is hard because the vacuum is really loud, and I have to follow her around the house holding my computer and reading. (laughs) The first weird thing I noticed when I walked into Mascouf is that a lot of people eating there were wearing big black face masks, so you could only see their eyes. Mom said to me kind of disappointedly that she was hoping there would be more people who, quote, look like us. But I said that we don't know what the people who look like because they're hiding in the masks. Then mom elbowed me in the neck, which is, which is what she... <laughs> then mom elbowed me in the neck, which is what she does when I say things that are either too loud or too quiet or if I'm laughing. <laughs> when mom looked at the menu, she said kind of quietly under her breath, figures it's fucking dry. I'm not sure what she meant by that, but I think it has something to do with alcohol, because whenever mom opens a menu, the first thing she does is look at the alcohol and breathe a sigh of relief. <laughs> mom said that, we sh- that she would order for both of us, and that we should share food, which, you- which she usually says when she doesn't think the food will be good. When the woman came over to take the order, mom looked at her like she was kind of a homeless person, and said, and where are you from? When the woman said, Iraq, mom said, oh, beautiful, what city? Then the woman said, Baghdad. And mom said, aw, as though the woman was crying. (laughs) But the woman wasn't crying, she was smiling. So I looked up at the woman and I smiled very big to show her that I was not always on mom's side. But when the woman saw me smiling, she made a weird face, like I was making fun of her, which I wasn't. Then mom kicked me under the table and my leg hurt for the rest of the night and a little bit the next morning, which is today. The first thing the woman brought us was a weird pile of rice on a plate and a big bowl of soupy-looking eggplant in a red sauce. I could tell Mom got a little nauseous by it, but she smiled at the woman and said, Wow, traditional, can't wait to dig in. But I could tell that Mom was lying because when the woman walked away, Mom took a little bite of it just with the front of her teeth and then flared her nostrils like she wanted to puke right there at the table. Then she said, Sweetie, I think you'll like this. Why don't you try it? So I knew she must not have liked it. Then mom poured the eggplant stuff onto the rice and kind of moved it around the plate to make it look like we had eaten it. Then the woman brought us the other dish, which was a chicken shish kebab with french fries. The french fries just tasted like french fries, even though they didn't have ketchup, and the chicken shish kebab just tasted like regular chicken. When mom and I tasted how normal it was, we looked at each other in a relieved way, like we were Matt's brothers and we had just come back from Iraq. On the way home, mom called all the women in her book club to tell them that we went to Mascouf. She lied the whole time, telling them how nice it was to spend some alone time with me, and how interesting it was to see all the Iraq people in their black face masks, and that she didn't even think about dad's new girlfriend one time during the fun and tasty dinner. (laughs) When mom lies, she doesn't just say the things she doesn't mean, she says the opposite of the things she does mean. And probably most children would be angry at their moms for lying so much, but for some reason it just makes me feel sad for her. When we got home, I read mom the plot synopsis for Wuthering Heights while she vacuumed in her underwear. Then mom said her stomach kind of hurt, and I thought that maybe mine did too. So mom and I both went into separate bathrooms and didn't come out for a long time. And that's why I'm giving Mascouf 129 out of 2,000 stars. Okay. Thank you so much. Thank you very much. Um, um, so now I was told that there can be questions. I can't imagine that there'd be anything outstanding after that performance, but if there are still some mysteries to unravel, feel free to... Re- Hi, please. I want to ask you, did you shave your hand for your role as Lex Luthor? I wasn't sure that that would be the first question after, <laughs> after the book reading, but I thought it might be in the top five. Um, and unfortunately, it's the only one I can't answer. I'm willing to, I can talk about anything in my life, any personal thing. I could reveal any detail about any family member, but that I can't. 
So, okay, another one. What inspired the um, title of the book? The title of the book... Um, was um so oh yeah so i i um i never actually explicitly mentioned bream but i i thought i like the phrasing of it it's a book of uh, several different stories and several different characters but i um but the title refers to bream as this kind of fancy fish that i've seen on menus at fancy fish places and hiccups is this what i think of as kind of like or what we think generally collectively is like a juvenile reaction to you know juvenile physical reaction and so i thought oh it, it sums up his character this fancy thing and he has this juvenile reaction to it and then i like the phrasing of it for the entire book because it seemed like a good kind of title to sum up uh, a book of humor because it's nonsensical but feels fun and at once accessible and also confusing. If I could just go back to the Lex Luthor question, though. Um, I, thought about, I thought about my answer during this current answer, and um, I would, if you guys don't mind, I'd like to spend the next um, hour just discussing it, um, just how I got into that role, but more importantly, the hair. So, okay, does anybody have any other questions? <laughs> okay, hi, you wanna? Um, I first started reading the best Views from the Nine-Year-Old Boy. Oh, yeah, so you don't need to buy the book? No. Okay. <laughs> yeah. My favorite was The Flat Records. Oh, yeah. I love that one. Oh, thanks. I was wondering what inspired. Like, did, did you see, like, what inspired that particular plot Yes, I, 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 I have a friend, uh, Jim, and he's a great writer, and we, he bounces his ideas off me, I bounce mine, and that was the only one in the book that I said, Jim, do you have any, like, the craziest idea? He said, oh yeah, what if they are scheduled to meet a child molester? And then I thought, oh, that would be really funny, because what's funny about this character is he can view the most serious things, and through his kind of sweetly naive perspective, he, he makes it, like, palatable to the reader until you step back and think, oh, the mom's an alcoholic, abusive woman, and they run into a child molester and just skirt death um, coincidentally so that's the story that you're referring to and um, I like it because you can push the boundaries with a voice like that to have him witness the worst things and then describe it in a way that's sweet Um, that's the joy of a character like that then conversely in the book I have a my other like longer stories in the book is an 18 year old girl and she's the exact opposite she's describing very nice things in the with with the uh, but seething with rage and vitriol and so they're kind of like these two characters kind of opposite ends of that spectrum you she's describing her roommate as like the worst person on earth um she has the meanest nickname for her she just calls she she talks about every part of this girl's body in the worst possible way but you can read through the lines and see this girl's the roommate's this wonderful perfect friend for her and if she would just open her eyes to it they would have a great relationship so she's kind of the opposite of this boy that's also a fun voice to explore because conversely you can you know you can have the best possible circumstances and describe them in the worst way Oh, right. Um, um, can I go back to the Lex Luthor question? Um, <laughs> no, I don't know. I don't have a preference on yogurt. I like... Uh, who knows? Who knows about stuff like that? I don't know. Um, I don't know names or brands of yogurt. I don't know. I just eat what's sitting there. Um, uh, I come from a family of vegans, so they like to get like maybe coconut yogurt. I can't believe I'm spending this much time talking about um, And that, But if it has kind of the cultures in it, because I like to think that there's some activity in my stomach that I don't have to account for. The bacteria. I like the idea of the good bacteria fighting the bad bacteria. Like there's some righteous effort on the part of my gut. So I like that. Um, so I try to eat that. Um, what else? Um, and what was the other thing? Oh, short fiction? Oh, I mean, I th- so, like, Miranda July and George Saunders, um, those are my favorite short story collections. Uh, uh, she wrote one collection, the, uh, you know, one belongs to you. and George Saunders um, wrote several short story collections. Um, and then, uh, in terms of, like, comedy, I have a friend, like, Simon Rich, who writes really great straight comedy, and seems, uh, and he's hysterical, and I think of him kind of like a, um, I, he's, like, almost... I think of the, the way he thinks of jokes is almost mathematical. He knows exactly what makes people laugh, and he's perfected, and he's fantastic. Um, uh, then, of course, like there's S.J. Perlman and Woody Allen, who were like, let's say, the grandfathers of this kind of short fiction, or at least I would say my grandfathers, because that's what inspired me. Um, 
And then, so like when I discovered The New Yorker and McSweeney's, um, they were the people I had read before I discovered that, and that's what people are doing now, and which seems to me kind of like an offshoot. And uh, um, this is not false modesty, but I can't, everybody, but everybody's like in the shadow of what Woody Allen did with short fiction. Um, and I mean false modesty on the part of my generation, because what he did was so unusual. Um, who else for short fiction? Jeez, uh, I don't know. I'll try to think of some other great name and then throw it out as though I'm well-versed in it. So, um, yeah. Also, Moby Dick is one of my favorite <laughs> authors. I just love what he does with sentences. Um, yeah, yeah. Never wrote a boring sentence. That's what people say. Never wrote it. Can't write a boring sentence. That's what they say. That's, oh, um, Alexander Hemond. He's fantastic. And he did, what was his short story? The question of Brutus? I forgot his short story collection. He's fantastic, but I prefer his novels. But, I mean, not prefer, but I really love his novels. And Juno Diaz Drown. That's a great short story collection. Okay, so I'll stop. Yeah, hi. Yes, I have. Well, yes, I have a um, a little sister who's like the sweetest, most well-adjusted kid. And in her first week at college, she called me. Uh, this is like five years ago. She called me, and she said something like along the lines of like, "My fucking roommate just sat on my fucking bed in her fucking jeans after she was fucking out at a fucking store." And like, I had never seen. <laughs> I'd never seen rage like that from a human, you know, and I'd never seen I'd never seen anything like that from her, certainly. And I realized, oh, she was kind of just like the rest of us, kind of just have, making a difficult transition in life and reacting to it in an irrational way. In her case, it came out as this brief rage. And I said, I, I, I was trying to think of solutions, you know, maybe you could talk to the room. And no, it's not going to fuck up. And then, um, so, so, and she's very self-aware as a sense of humor about it too, but for some reason she was overcome with rage at that moment. I said, you know, it'd be funny, why don't you write a, uh, a blog called My Roommate Stole My Ramen, where you, you kind of detail the worst things that a roommate could do, and it'll relieve your anxiety, and it'll also make you laugh, and it'll be funny to read. And she thought about it, and she said she didn't want to do it. I said, okay, well then, give it to me. And so I thought about this character for, for two years, because I couldn't figure out what the voice of this thing would be. Because, but I knew, and then I was reading a lot of David Foster Wallace in preparation for a movie, and he uses a lot of endnotes. And once I saw the endnotes, I thought, oh, that's the ticket. This is a girl who would use endnotes, so she would detail every single aspect of her rage, um, and she would do it in such a kind of labor-intensive way that it would be a really funny way to detail like the depths of her anger. And so uh, that was like the key, and once I figured that out, then I was able to write it, and it kind of really poured forth, because I really like that character. It's my favorite character in the book, and I could write a lot more from her, but the kind of overlap of my interest in it with yours would end it where the book ended. <laughs> yeah. Somebody else? Yeah, hi. Well, because I, I feel a little personally sad. I'm, I'm not lazy, but uh, you, like the things that like m- my grandparents' generation had to do, they would. It seems so much kind of more like socially valuable, more interesting, more creative in a lot of ways. Because like I'm in the arts explicitly, but the stuff they were doing to survive was far more creative than anything I'll ever write. And um, in the plays, I like doing uh, kind of uh, my plays are all about. Uh, kind of like shitty versions of myself, like lazy versions of myself interacting with people who are like from a different culture, a different country, because I love the juxtaposition of the people who are kind of in their first generation experience of the struggle, uh, mixed with uh, the kind of third generation uh, 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 malaise that like I feel like my, I'm stuck in, um, or at least that I members of my generation are stuck in. And um, because a hundred years ago I would have been that person and you know for, were it not for kind of a fluke of historical events many of which were other people trying to kill my family um, I would be that um, and so I guess yeah trying to kind of wrestle with that and to be in a city like New York or Los Angeles but I happen to live in New York um, which is the Los Angeles of the east and you know <laughs> This is like a very, I'm in touch with more people who are not from this country than from this country, or like I would say maybe an equal, maybe 60-40 other countries to this country. And um, so it seems like how can you not acknowledge that, and how can you not, if you're self-aware at all, acknowledge like the kind of absurdity of your own place with regards to people who are really, you know, struggling 
And how could you complain about anything when you're, you're face to face with that struggle? And um, uh, so I find it because there's a lot of comedy and there's, that can be mined from there. So that's why I guess I like writing it in plays. But ultimately, there's something very dramatic and I think also kind of um, uh, socially important to discuss. Hi, how you doing? Hi. It is like the yogurt question. I don't know. Well, I don't know. I, you can check my Yelp reviews. I don't know. I guess I've been to them. Yes, I don't know. I've e- yeah. Yeah. Really? Really? Oh, God. I like the bread. They can't write a boring sentence. Um, I don't know. I like all foods. We, I, we live like a 90... 90- Percent vegetarian, so Middle Eastern food is good for that. Vegetarian, uh, hummus. I can't believe I'm naming foods. This is ridiculous. I don't know the names of anything, but um, that one I did go to. I went to this place, Mass Goof, and I, I just thought it was there's something so silly about it because it was basically. It was either people who were like Iraqi and they were dressed like this or, or they were kind of like people who I assessed were kind of like me, like kind of liberals trying to like kind of like, you know, trudge through it, you know, and like, you know, do it to tell their friends and everything. And there's just something funny about those two crowds meeting because they don't really want to meet each other. But, you know, they're kind of doing it for the good of the, you know, society, even though like they don't really want to be there. And um, uh, yeah, so that's why I wrote about it because it's kind of like a funny juxtaposition. And the boy, again, because he's innocent and I he can kind of pick up on the hypocrisies of it. Like, mom lied the whole time, saying she liked meeting people in the masks. Like, when he could see that his mom is scared of them and that she's, you know, xenophobic and the kid's too na- naive to be z- z- xenophobic. Yeah. Hey. Well, oh, sorry. Sorry. We should have to take it from the... Hi, how you doing? Thank you for coming. Yeah. No, no, I know her. That's why I said that. Hey. Yeah. Do you wanna... seem like an old soul. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's just my posture. Yeah. If I stood up straight, you'd think I was a lot more youthful. Writing as a child. Yeah. Like, how old did you start writing? Oh, how old did I start writing? Oh, God. Um, I don't... I guess... The truth is, when I started... When I learned how to write my name... Um, my older sister wrote it everywhere in the house and I was too young to realize that I didn't do it because I didn't think you could blackmail at that age. Um, Or not blackmail. What is the word? Lie is the word. (laughs) Slander and thieve. Um, Yes, so, so, so I would tell my mom, Mom, I did something bad but I didn't do it. And I didn't know how to I didn't know how to tell my mom. I didn't write my name on the wall, but I didn't write my name on My sister did it. That was the first thing I didn't write. Um, <laughs> the rest of this book was done roughly this, by the same process. Um, my sister wrote this and put my name on it. And then um, when I was 12 years old, I wrote kind of, I would say, bad jokes. I love stand-up comedy when I was 12, so I used to write like bad jokes, but they were all jokes about like sex, about something I wouldn't learn about for another decade. Um, <laughs> Please don't do the math. And then, um, and, but first, after I learned about it, I learned about it hard. So, um, yeah, so don't feel too bad. It was like zero to 60. Um, no, it was like, it was like a Tesla. Um, and then, um, uh, so I started writing jokes, and then, okay, the truth is, I, I think Bob Odenkirk is here. I don't know if he's still here, but he just randomly came in. He didn't know I was here. And I start, he, was the one who, he was the one who forced me into, I, I, credit, I credit him, regardless of his presence here. If he wasn't here, I would say, say this. And uh, he, he really taught, what happened was, when I was 18, 19, 20, I started writing, like, Hollywood movie scripts, like, kind of commercial-type scripts. And they were fine, they were adequate, but then, like, I would get notes back. I got them, like, optioned by a company when I was young, and then um, I, I, they would give me notes on them and I, I would like take a year and sit down to write the notes as though they were ever going to get made and of course none of them would ever get made and then I met Bob Odenkirk I was like 22 and I gave him a script I said would you read this you're like the best voice in comedy what do you think and he was like buddy these are terrible write something personal right? he, he said this is like the kind of thing like they would hire like a guy from Adam Sandler's company to write and they would sit in an office and write for a week write something personal you're a sensitive guy figure something out and I was so disappointed for like a year <clears throat> and then um uh, like a year later I decide I gotta do that I gotta write something personal I was so kind of shamed but also he was correct and so I wrote my first play The Revisionist um, and uh, when I was like 23 and then 
it got produced like four years later and Vanessa Redgrave played the part and it, she liked the script and made me think like, uh, oh, I could do this. I could do this for real. And then I have this great luxury of being an actor and making my living from that. So I don't feel like this kind of pressure to rely on writing like commercial things to get them produced uh, in order to make my living. So I feel this great weight lifted that I'm probably a, a lot of, it's a luxury that a lot of writers don't have because that's not where my living comes from. So I could write only when I feel like it's exactly what I want to write and it feels like, you know, pure for me. It doesn't feel like I'm trying to appease a big group. Not that a lot of writers do, maybe no one. I mean, but, but I just don't have that burden. And, uh, then now I feel like free. I just write anything I'm interested in. And, you know, anyway, paradoxically, almost the stuff is better. Hi. Hi. Thanks for coming here. Yeah. We know each other. But we worked all day together, so that's why I'm saying that. Yes, otherwise I would, otherwise I would just say you. Yeah, thanks. Yeah. Where did the, the mother, the least about the whole mother thing? Um, so, um, I met Bob Odenkirk, and he, uh, no, no. <laughs> Um, no, actually, that character is a character I've tried to put in about 40 things that never got published. Um, I wrote a musical when I was younger because I like to write musical songs, and that was the main character, and it was a musical called Me Time, and it was about this woman who's newly divorced, and she decides to take me time at the expense of her son who she abandons, and it's like a musical comedy, and nothing happened with the music. I was so frustrated, so I was like, i got to put this character in somewhere because I know her voice so well. She's this person who is, she on the surface is this horrible person. Like, she says the worst racist most shallow, disgusting things. But as you'll see in the stories, if you get to the end of these stories, uh, you see she's actually the most like heartbreaking character. She just needs love, and by the end, she gets a little bit of it or kind of the taste of it, and you realize that's where she thrives and that's what she needs. So I love a person like that who wears this kind of disgusting persona in an attempt to... I don't know what. I mean, who knows why people act that way, to self-protect because they're amused by it, because they're scared of intimacy, whatever the psychology is. It's... It's, I, I could do the voice very clearly. It's probably more, more difficult to diagnose specifically. But so somebody like that is just interesting, and you know, especially in like intimate fiction like this, where you can really diagnose a person over the course of a long, uh, extended period of time. Do you see that character being made in a film? Uh, oh, m- maybe. I'm sure there are versions of uh, of women like that. Uh, there's a kind of cliche, I would say, in like Jewish humor, and maybe other ethnicities do it too. But I, I'm not those, so I don't know. <laughs> but I can imagine any religion could do this. But in uh, Jewish humor, there's the kind of the tradition of the overbearing mother, uh, and it's used to kind of like a comedic effect to kind of portray like the kind of flip side of the Oedipal complex of the kind of son who's like scared of the overbearing mother. And in this, it's really I tried to do kind of the opposite with it to not to have the kid long for time with his mother and the mother to push him away, which in a way is a kind of the opposite you know, side of the sword of, of the Oedipal complex, which is just another kind of fraught relationship between a mother and son, where actually she's kind of projecting the bad husband onto the son. So it's a, maybe a reverse thing. I don't know if that's Electra or another Greek god, but it's a different kind of complex. Yes, it's maybe the Helios complex. Maybe they should choose that for one of the, one of the more obscure gods to describe that complex. That's the Philoctetes complex. Yeah. Hi. Hey. You don't mind talking about uh, films, do you? No, it's my, one of my favorite mediums. <laughs> <laughs> the end of the tour was a special film for me. I really enjoyed it. And I, I just thought maybe you'd talk a little bit about how you and Jason Segel kind of locked in with one another and had this amazing syncopation together. Um, was there a special process to it, or did it just come about? Yes, I would say both. Um, so yeah, in the end of the tour, yeah, for two char- just a pr- for 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 uh, background, yeah, it's like two characters. He plays David Foster Wallace. I play David Lipsky, and we're kind of like yeah, stuck in uh, cars and diners, you know, in small spaces together. Um, and uh, we didn't really meet or rehearse the movie at all because he was doing a TV show, and it ended like Sunday, and we started shooting Monday. So like or Friday, whatever it was, we didn't have any time. So um, we started filming the movie. The first scene that we filmed together was the first scene where we meet and you know you could argue oh maybe that's helpful you know because the characters are not playing like long-time best friends who have to have a rapport but I actually don't think that's so relevant but it could you could argue maybe more helpful that the actors don't meet and the characters haven't met so maybe there's some kind of but I don't think that's what it is at all I think what it is actually is like the there was a great context set up for 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 us which was this real event that we were both very interested in we both like both writers um, and we both liked our characters and the director is so phenomenal uh, that uh, he created this unusual context where it felt like uh, we were both adhering to the good 
movie that we all were setting out to make and also kind of discovering all these new things as we did it. It, it was uh, just an unusual process in that way. Um, there was also the nature of the filming, which was that it was done like in the coldest winter in record in one of the coldest cities in America, like Grand Rapids and the surrounding uh, kind of western Michigan, Lake Michigan area. And uh, so it was just one of these experiences. I know probably a lot of people here work in film, so you could understand like one of these strange experiences where the uh, circumstances are so unbearable that the project becomes that much more special because you you put everything into it you know you can't stand outside and enjoy the sun you know kind of shivering and doing the scene and it adds like a momentum and an intensity and an energy that wouldn't otherwise be there and then I guess the last thing the last thought I have about what you asked is uh, that Jason is a really good actor and he's like I would say like a sane human being and so a lot of people here know movie people so you can see that that's like you know maybe in the minority and um, um, he's like a giving guy you know what I mean so there's not he was not neither one of us were interested in like taking over a moment or a scene you know he's a giving person uh, you know if you're kind of a savvy actor you, you'll realize that there's yeah that's right yeah that's right it's usually the kind of savvier actors that realize that you, you better the other person and the movie is better and you're better well, the, the interesting thing about that movie was it was actually based on a series. Oh God, that's like thing. Wait, yeah, we're doing a thing here. So, um, yeah, 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 that's okay. God, you can't yeah, knock all Encyclopedia Britannica's off. God, um, oh my God, he knocked the new Norwegian trilogy just fell from the thing. Um, God, more like my struggle. Um, literary references. Instead of real jokes. Um, I don't even remember what we were talking about. Oh, God. I've lost my place, but I'm sure it's on the DVD extras. Yeah. Back and forth. Yes, there was back and forth. Yes, oh, so, oh, the movie was based on these interesting transcripts. We had the tape. I have them on my telephone, actually, because my character was a journalist. He recorded everything, and so the, 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 uh, um, so that we had the, the recordings. Of course, it's, you can't adhere strictly to them, but, uh, Jason's dialogue was from, you know, David Foster Wallace, who's not alive and who's one of the greatest minds, you know, ever. So, you know, he didn't really want to change stuff. My character was more kind of interjecting and stuff. So there was more, I guess, it was more acceptable for me to kind of find manipulative ways. But Jason's speeches were so perfectly articulated by Wallace that I think he probably probably was less inclined to deviate. Yeah, thanks a lot. Hi there. Hi, you can say something. Um, so, in a couple of these questions, you kind of address different aspects of compassion, like, you know, spatial relationships and whatnot. And I was just wondering if, um, you know, as an actor, as a writer, um, is there any way that maybe your professional experience as an actor has kind of informed the way that you approach writing, just just writing? Like, you say you have you know, friends who are writers or comedians and, yeah, yeah, I have the, I have, I have such a strange uh, kind of luxury that I only realize in retrospect, which is that I'm kind of like forced to play characters that I would not have written, and it gets me into the mindset of these people in a way that I, I would never have been able to put myself in. So, for example, the nine-year-old boy, I actually started writing it in London. I was doing a movie called The Double, and my character is playing this like kind of emotionally stunted guy, and I was always thinking in that mindset every day, like a baby, like he was like a baby he thinks like a nine-year-old you know or, or, so I thought so I started writing from that perspective and he's this sweetly naive innocent guy and so I started writing and I would never have kind of had that inclination to write from that perspective but because I was kind of forced into it through my acting job I was doing now the other character in that movie because I play a doppelganger in that movie was this kind of brash you know horrible abusive guy and so that kind of like became the mother character in a way so um in a way, the uh, kind of psychology that was imposed upon me by somebody else, in that case it was Dostoevsky, who's one of my favorite um, psychological imposers, um, um, and one of the ones I think I go to most. Um, 
sometimes Moby Dick. Um, <laughs> my other, he can't write a boring. Um, uh, so uh, it was great. It kind of it, it 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 was like the equivalent of like somebody forcing a writer to sit in a room and say, "Hey, write a story about a nine-year-old," which I think every writer kind of dreams of. You know, they always say like, "I wish somebody would just." come in the room and, you know, put a knife to me and say, finish the story, because then I'd be able to do it. But Jesus, because I don't have a deadline, I can't get anything done. So to me, it kind of, it gave me that, in a strange way, that kind of, that deadline or that inspiration. Hi. Yeah, it's okay, we can do seconds. Yeah. I'll just ask a different question this time. Yeah, yeah. So you have characters in your book that are very... Rageful and abusive. Do you find that that has any overlap um, in your personality in your day to day life? If it does, <laughs> only when you're in writing something. Yeah, yeah. Um, and if it does, do you do anything to kind of reset and get yourself back to you after you've written? Are you going to bill me for the session? Um, <laughs> um, well, I yes, I feel like the rage, but uh, my sense is that all. People feel a terrible rage, and I have like figured out a way to have this cathartic experience. So I don't take it out on somebody else. You know, I think I have this great outlet. You know, I feel anger and sadness and all this stuff. It's kind of it's totally mystifying to me why human adults don't walk around constantly weeping. Like it, I understand that it's socially inefficient to do that, but it also seems to me like we all should be weeping. Like if you open the news or just you know or hear anything from anybody, it just seems so terrible. And um, so when I, I I could like put that in a story or go act in a movie, and then it's like not only is that like a safe space to express that kind of stuff, but it's encouraged. Like the more I like dig into those feelings, the better the book will be, the better a movie character will be, and so it's this really great thing. Now I don't think that actually is a bad thing. I uh, I guess there are two. S- Probably there are many different ideas. One is that by kind of forcing yourself to feel that terrible feeling, you'll in some way manufacture it and perpetuate it. But uh, and maybe it does do that. I don't know. But um, I also think you could equally argue that oh no, you're kind of releasing it in a safe environment, and then you go home. I've experienced both sides of that. Sometimes I'll do a movie. I'm playing an angry character, and you become a little mean to the people around you, and they leave or remind you. And um, <laughs> Uh, but sometimes also you get out a thing that you know you should have otherwise otherwise might be t- take out in the wrong place. Hi, Kelsey. Yeah. Hi. Oh yeah. Hi. Oh yeah. 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 I'm concerned more with writing something that I've never read before. So I have a lot of different forms in the book, but those forms just support the ideas that I want to present, and those are the best vehicles for the presentation of them. I, But I mainly just try to write something I think I've never read before. Now, the great thing about me is I haven't read that much, so um, it seems to be all fair game. Um, uh, but um, I can't account for all that other stuff. I get nervous when I hear no one went to the movies this weekend or the novel's dead because I think like oh that's kind of my livelihood and I think like I guess the the kind of the you know early man instinct kicks in and I th- I look for bears you know to kill but um <laughs> But um, but when I'm doing one of the things, you're, it couldn't be farther from your mind. You know, you think like you know, like if you read a movie script and you think, "Wow, this is great! I want to do it." And you're interested in the story. The last thing from your mind is, "I hope people see it." I mean, that's not the really way to think. It's not really the way to do well. When I'm writing something, I can't think about the kind of the impending fatality of the novel because I'm so interested in what I'm telling. Then you go on like book tours, or you go meet with publishers, or you send out proposals, or whatever. People do to get their things done, and that's when you start really worrying for it, worrying about it, and realizing that oh goodness, maybe you know I should t- t- learn to weld. <laughs> <laughs> to, to just maybe the 
Sure, sure, sure. I'm going to give a more general answer, though, as you fine tune. <laughs> Oh, sorry, sorry. Sure. They both got, in Wallace's case, he got away with a lot of pyrotechnics and theory at a brilliant length. In the case of my struggles author, I virtually his name every time. I was, I think a lot of people were surprised that he got away and was so successful with uh, presenting like memoirs fiction and being so intimate. Um, I guess, so to, re to retune the question, is just that. Are you essentially saying you have no anxiety about like, publishability or, or whatever? Are you just fairly confident that like whatever feels your your creative fancy will, mm -hmm. will be poured into this container and accepted? Or are you like not? I guess if it, if it crossed my mind, it would just be unhelpful. I can't really... I guess I think anybody who's doing something that they like is probably not working backwards from, the po from thinking uh, that people will like it first. You know, when you read, like... Uh, uh, when you read stuff you like, you get the sense that the person who wrote it liked it even more than you. And the reason you like it is probably because some of that is drifting into your experience of it. Um, I can't imagine they were thinking backwards and thought, what would this person like? There are people who do that. Those are the things that no one remembers. Yeah. Do you like your I like just the hyphen. I don't like the jobs I do. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I don't see things as that different. I also have this very uh, profound feeling of desperation, like, because everything I do seems to end in a few months. You know, you act in a movie, it ends in a few months, you write a book, and then the book's done. You write a play, and then you do the play, and it ends. And so I have this feeling like I have to constantly do stuff. And I think of, like, acting as kind of like being a a drummer, like, as great as you are, you still need a band, you know, and sometimes the band's not going to call you into practice, um, whereas writing is like kind of playing a guitar, like, maybe fewer people will see you if you're like a folk guitar, but you'll always get to do it on your own, and it's so, so I like to have both, I think if I didn't have either one, I think I'd feel either really kind of isolated if I was only writing, or kind of, uh, uh, or bored if I was only acting, and you don't do it for so many months out of the year. Okay, we could take one more. We'll take one more, but we can't answer it. We just hear the hear the hear the question and kind of leave on that. Okay, sorry. Oh, hi. Sorry, I sorry. sorry. I'm can, curious about social network. You're yeah. amazing. I go here. Yeah. Okay. No, I'm kidding. Good. Okay. That's a joke. Was it extra hard playing someone who's alive? And was he on the set, or what was your experience like playing that? That was awesome. The strangest thing was he was doing the cinematography, and we thought it was weird. <laughs> yeah, because not only was he kind of like there watching us but he was lighting us and I felt like it felt like out of all the cinematographers in Los Angeles like and he'd never done anything why choose him it just seems like because you thought he would light it to kind of suit what he wanted to say about the story you know what I mean and there's a lot you can do with lighting we discovered on that and we had to reshoot the whole thing um um and then he just did Bridge of Spies which I thought looked really good um but I think it was probably because he had no kind of personal feelings about that project. Um, it was a period piece. Uh, he's a young guy. I think we're the same age. Yeah, so thank you so much for coming here and everything. Thank you so much for coming here. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget that you can listen to this and all of our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Thanks again for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.